0: According to John, this morning we're looking at John chapter 8, and we'll look at verses 30 through 36. John chapter 8, 30 through 36. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham, and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits a sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The Son remains forever. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. This is the Word of the Lord. Thanks. Thanks be to God. Father, we do thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Jesus Christ, Your Son, the only One who can set us slaves free. Father, I pray that You will set us free. And may we see that this freedom is not a one-time act, but something that needs to take place regularly throughout our lives. But Father, we thank You for Your Word. And I want to pray that You will send Your Spirit to enable me to communicate these great words. Send Your Spirit to give Your people ears to hear, hearts to understand, and wills to obey Your Word. Father, may our lives be transformed. May our lives be liberated because of Your very Word that we love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. On any given Sunday in any given evangelical church, there are usually four groups of people present in the congregation. First of all, there is a group made up of Christians, and these people know that they are Christians. Uh, They know that they have been born again. Uh, They know that they are exercising saving faith in Jesus Christ. He knows that He alone is their only hope of eternal life. And they are confident of their salvation. Another group that's present uh, in any given evangelical church is non-Christians. Non-Christians who know that they are non-Christians. Um, They know that they are not looking to Jesus Christ for salvation. Um, They are at church for a number of different reasons. Perhaps they were dragged to church. Uh, Perhaps they're curious about the claims of Christ. Perhaps they're interested in what the Bible has to say. Perhaps they know they need religion. Uh, Nevertheless, they're non-Christians and they know that they are not Christians yet. Then there's a third group of people present. And this group is made up of Christians who really are Christians, but they're not sure about their salvation. They're lacking in assurance. Um, They think that perhaps they don't quite live up to God's standards. They're not always sure that God welcomes them fully. Um, They're Christians, but they're lacking in assurance. Often these people are basing their justification on their sanctification. Uh, which simply means they're basing their acceptance before God and how they live on a regular basis. And of course, how they live on a regular basis is up and down and up and down. Uh, and they're trusting that um, rather than trusting in God's grace alone. Um, then a final group uh, that represents any given church uh, is a group of non-Christians who think they are Christians. Christians. Um, After all, they reason I'm an American, so I'm a Christian. Or I'm not a Muslim. I'm not a Buddhist. I'm not a a Hindu. I'm not an atheist, so they think they're Christians. Uh, They believe that God created everything that we see. Um, They might even believe in the creeds, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed. Um, But they have not put their faith in Jesus Christ solely for their salvation and experienced the transformed life that results from such a faith. Um, Now, the difficult part for a pastor uh, ministering to a diverse body, a diverse congregation, is that you realize that the church is made up of these different groups of people who have these different beliefs. And often it's not uncommon uh, for someone to come up to me and say, you know, on Sunday we had this time of confession. And, and you tell people that if, if they ask for forgiveness, God will forgive them. And sometimes parents will say, well, I'm afraid that my kids think they can live however they want and, and they'll be forgiven. And I say, I understand that. I, I don't want God's grace to be abused. Yet, I want them to know, because we all sin every week, I want them to know that God is merciful. God is gracious. And they need to ask for forgiveness. And I know that there are many tender-hearted people who sin. And for them, when they hear me say on Sunday, and God forgives you to them, it's like Oh, it's, it's, it's such a relief because they have such tender consciences. Yet, I know there's others and for them, that can be a license of sin. And they think, ah, oh, say some little prayer and and God forgives me. But they, they don't really mean it. And I fear the fourth group who have a false assurance. Um, they hear, just ask for forgiveness and you're forgive, forgiven. But they have a false assurance. They haven't really put their faith in Jesus Christ. Even though they think they have put their faith in Jesus Christ. And this is what makes it difficult to minister to this group. Uh, now, as a pastor, I have a special concern for this group for at least two reasons. First of all, the fourth group of those who are Christian or non-Christian but think they are Christians is composed of many people. And I have a special concern because what's at stake is nothing less than their eternal destiny. And in our passage this morning... Jesus' target audience, if you will, is this fourth category. Those who think they're Christians because they put some kind of faith in Christ, but they are not truly His disciples. But before we look at the passage in John, I'd like you to turn to Matthew 7. Another context where Jesus addresses this group. And I think this might be a good introduction to our passage. Matthew 7, beginning at verse 21. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to Me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of My Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to Me, Lord, Lord, Did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Not in the name of Muhammad. Not in the name of Buddha. In your name. In the name of Jesus Christ. And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Frightening words. Let me make just several quick observations. First of all, Notice that Jesus says that on that day, not a few, not some, many, many will say to Me, Lord, Lord, many will think that they are going to be given free access into the Kingdom of God. They're expecting God to open the doors of the Kingdom for them. They're expecting to walk right in. And Jesus is going to say, I'm sorry, but you were deceived. I never knew you. Depart from me. That is scary. And that frightens me as a pastor to think that many are deceived about their spiritual condition. I remember on one occasion I was talking with another pastor And he said he used to share the four spiritual laws. You know, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And your sins have separated you from your God. And, you know, he drew the illustration that, you know, man is over here. God is over here. There's a big chasm in the middle separating us because of our sin. And he puts the cross on there. Jesus Christ died to bridge the gap between man and God. And if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you'll cross over that bridge. And God will embrace you. And he said, and after they pray that prayer, when they understand that, I tell them, and never doubt your salvation. And I say, I'm a little uncomfortable with that. Because while I want to tell people this, this is how you turn to Christ and it's, we're saved by grace alone through, through faith alone, I want to be careful of telling them never to doubt their salvation because you, you don't know how genuine they are in their prayer. You don't know how they're going to live their life. And maybe a time's going to come when God's going to Himself through the Holy Spirit cast out upon their spiritual condition because they don't really believe. Not all belief, and we'll see this in a minute, not all belief is saving belief. So we have to be careful. And I said, I would hate to tell someone your spiritual destiny is secure when it's not. That's frightening. And do you see the tension for a pastor? You want to give assurance on the one hand, but on the other hand, you don't want to give false assurance. And there's a fine line between that sometimes. And many are in that deceived category, which is scary. And notice that the many in this category say to Jesus, they address Jesus, Lord, Lord. These are orthodox people. In Romans 10.9, we're told that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you are saved. That's what we are to confess, that He is Lord. It means that He is equal with Jehovah, that He is God Himself, the second person of the Trinity. And they say it twice, Lord, Lord, the repetition in the Bible of Lord, Lord, or Someone's name, you know, Saul, Saul, is personal. It it represents intimacy. So they think they have an intimate relationship with the Lord. They address Him as Lord and they say it twice. Lord, Lord. They think they have a very personal relationship with Him. And again, these are orthodox believers. Notice what they say in 22. This is really incredible. They prophesy in His name. They cast out demons in His name. They do many mighty works in His name. They teach Sunday school in His name. They give sermons in His name. Again, these are orthodox people. These are people who say the Apostles' Creed. These are people who say the Nicene Creed. And they believe it. They believe the Nicene Creed. They believe the facts of the Nicene Creed. But they don't have saving faith. You say, can people really be in that category? And I say, absolutely. You say, well, how do you know? Because I used to be in that category. I used to spout in church the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed. I can remember sitting at a bar drinking one time and hearing another, another employee saying that he didn't believe in God. And I remember sitting there thinking, how can you not believe in God? And it was second nature for me to believe in God, but I wasn't converted. I didn't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, but I didn't realize it until later when I turned to Christ in faith and experienced a transformed life. I was one of these religious people. I was deceived. I was hell-bound, but I thought I was heaven-bound. I was one of the many until God opened my eyes. And Jesus is addressing these people so that they won't be deceived. How do we know these people aren't real Christians? They look like Christians. They smell like Christians. They act like Christians. They talk like Christians. They know the jargon. In fact, sometimes these people look better than real Christians. And you say, how is that? Because they're so worried about how they look on the outside. Sometimes these people actually look better. They actually look more religious. But how do we know that they're not really saved. Well, there's two indicators. Jesus says it positively and negatively. First of all, positively in 21, He says, the one who does the will of My Father. That's a true believer. One who does the will of My Father. The will that is spelled out in the Word. That's a true believer. And negatively, He refers to this people as workers of lawlessness. Depart from Me, you workers of Lawlessness. who have no regard for the Word of God, who don't live according to it. Yes, you say the right things. You even do the right things. You're involved in ministry, but you don't have a love for my law, the will of the Father as it's described in Scripture. You want to do your own thing. So on the one hand, you do things that look really religious, but in your heart and when you're by yourself, you do what you want to do. You're not really Converted. You don't have the genuine thing. Now, this is hard because some of you might be thinking, well, wait a second. I thought we were saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You say, And, and we're Reformed Christians. We believe in the doctrines of grace. Sola fide. Sola gratia. Sola Christus. Grace alone. Faith alone. Christ alone. And now you're talking about Doing the will of God and not rebelling against the law. How do we put these together? Doesn't Romans 3.28 say, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith alone, apart from works of the law. And now you're talking about doing the works of the law. How, How do I put that together? Very simple. We're saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. That's what Jesus is getting at. True faith saves us alone. But it's like the engine of our salvation that has all these other trains of works that follow faith and will inevitably flow. They will be there. And He's saying, I know you don't really believe because the works aren't there, which gives evidence that your faith is not a genuine faith. Your faith is a spurious faith. So, Jesus is telling these disciples how they can know, in no uncertain terms, that they really are His disciples. Now, let's look at John. Same situation here. Same situation. And let's look at ourselves this morning it's so easy to look at others and think well i hope so and so is listening they need to hear this we all need to look at ourselves again we're we're talking about heaven and hell and maybe it'll help you to know that i evaluate my own spiritual condition my own standing before god i don't assume that i'm okay because i've gone to seminary and i'm continuing to go to school and i've been in the pastorate for going on 13 years now well of course i'm good No, I look at myself to make sure I really do have saving faith. We should all look at ourselves. In Ambrose Bierce's uh, humorous devil's dictionary, uh, he has this definition of a Christian. He says, One who believes the New Testament is a divinely inspired book, admirably situated to the spiritual needs of his neighbor one who follows the teachings of Christ insofar as they are not inconsistent with a life of sin. Unfortunately, that's true too often, which is why he penned that uh, semi-humorous definition. It's, it's humorous because there's some truth to it, but it's not humorous because there is some truth to it. So we need to look at ourselves. Uh, we need to be actually very careful about looking at others. And I really want to warn you um, Jesus told the parable of the wheats and the tares that grew together. And the wheats represent Christians and the tares represent non-Christians who are a part of the church. And the disciples say, well do you want us to go out into the church basically and do you want us to pull out uh, the tares, the weeds, because otherwise they'll get, you know, connected with the wheat. And what does Jesus say? No. Let both grow together. Because in thinking you're pulling out tares, you may actually pull out wheat. Because you can't always discern between real Christians and non-Christians. So we have to be very careful. And I just want you to know, as, as a pastor, my operating assumption is to believe the best. Um, I, I do that intentionally. Intentionally. And unless there is blatant sin in your life, unless you are blatantly saying that you reject Christ, or unless there is blatant rebellion in your life, I believe the best. I will believe the best about you, that you really do believe in Jesus Christ, this faith that you say that you have. And we should have that in the church. We should believe the best. We should not be suspicious of one another. We have to be very careful. So easy to be suspicious. We need to look at ourselves Now, notice what happens in this passage, verse 30. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. And this continues on our passage from last week. Uh, Jesus was saying, you will die in your sin unless you believe that I am. You will die in your sin unless you believe that I am God in the flesh, the second person of the Trinity. Unless you put your faith in me, you will die in your sin. And then the passage concludes by saying, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. And at this point, we're, we're, we're ready to get excited. We're like, oh, good. That's, that's what John wants. That's the whole purpose for writing this Gospel, right? Remember his purpose? These things I have written to you so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And by believing, you may have life in His name. That's why John wrote this Gospel. That's why he's telling us what Jesus said. And here we have people who... Believe in Him. And we're ready to get excited. We're like, oh, this is great. There's a group present that are believing in Jesus. However, we need to ask this question. Is it true belief? Is it a persevering belief? And while we're ready to get excited, we'll read on and our excitement will begin to wane a little bit. But that's the context of the passage. Does this person really or not have saving faith? And I want you also to notice that Jesus' concern is not simply to add numbers to the swelling crowds. Jesus doesn't respond, Oh, this, this is great. They're, they're expressing some kind of belief in me. And it doesn't matter what kind of belief it is. We're just glad to have more people here. Bigger is better, right? Uh Not always. Not always. And Jesus is going to go on to talk about the need to be set free. Which, by the way, is instructive to tell us about Christianity. It's not simply about believing so that you can go to heaven when you die. It's about living a life of freedom. And we need to know that this passage will only make sense if we understand that we are born slaves. Not... I am sorry to be the bearer of bad news, but every single one of us is born with chains around our arms and our legs. The chains of sin. Notice what Jesus says in 34. And again, this is important if we're to understand what Jesus is saying. 34, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, And if you've been here for a while, you know when Jesus introduces something truly, truly, amen, amen in the Greek, it's a way of saying, listen very carefully, right? It's a way of saying, give me your eyes, look at me. Pay very careful attention to what I'm about to say. Because what I'm about to say is very important. Truly, truly, I say to you. And then what does he say? Everyone. Not some, not many. Everyone who commits sin. Then you can stop right here. Well, how many of you sinned? Raise your hand. Everyone who commits sin is a slave, slave to sin. If you sin, it wasn't just a one-time act. It's a sign of your Slavery. R.C. Sproul uses this analogy. He says, we are all like slaves on a gallery. We still have minds, wills, and hearts, but the chains of our slavery limit our choices. It seems like we're free. It looks like we're free. I have a mind and I can think and I can rationalize and I can decide I want to do this and not that. It looks like I have freedom. Jesus says everyone who sins is a slave to sin. And as you go about your life, just listen and you will hear the clanking of chains. Those are the chains of sin that bind you. And you know what? All we have to do is be honest. I could end this discussion of free will versus slavery right now if we could just be honest. And I could just ask you this last week. Let me ask you, did you sin? And then I could follow up and say, well, why did you sin? Did you sin because you wanted to sin? Was there sin in your life that you really didn't want to do, but you you did it for some reason? Something else was was driving you? And we would all, if we're honest, would say, yeah. And we could say with Paul, that which I don't want to do, I do. And that which I want to do, I don't do. Oh, this wretched man that I am. Who will set me free? Even as a Christian, Paul is saying he has this conflicting going on inside of him. Why? Because we are not free as we claim to be. We're free to sin. And we know even after we become Christians, we are not completely free. We are in a sense. Jesus sets us free. But we know there's still that struggle. Before that time, we're free to do whatever we want. The problem is the only thing we want to do is sin. Sin. See at least a Christian has a struggle. The non-Christian has no struggle. He just sins, and he thinks he does so while spouting his freedom. Isn't that funny? People think they're, they're so free. Look, look at the Hollywood people, so so free to go out and drink and do drugs and be promiscuous. And then after that, what do you read? And so-and-so is now attending the Betty Ford Center. You know what the Betty Ford Center is? It's a place for those in bondage. Addiction is just a euphemism for slave to sin. It's a place where people are being trying to be set free from the chains that bind them. And it's interesting. One moment they're spouting how free they are and how liberal they are, and then the next day they wake up and and they admit, boy, I am so entangled in the cords of bondage. It's it's terrible. I need help. We're slaves. We're slaves. I guess you could say we sin of our own free will if you want to put it together. And here's here's the other interesting thing about about freedom, we understand freedom as as much as a fish understands flying. (laughs) what, What does that mean? Ask a fish about the freedom of flying through the air, and the fish has no concept because it's never experienced flying through the air. Here's the truth. You and I have never experienced true freedom We've never experienced. It's foreign to us because true freedom was sacrificed at the fall. Turn to Genesis 3. I'd like you to see where we lost this freedom and what came in its place. I hope this analogy isn't too crass, but I... I hope it will make the point. If you were to ask me, what's freedom? What's what's our closest picture of of freedom in this life? And and maybe the closest example I can think of is a two-year-old running around the backyard butt naked. He hasn't a care in the world. He's not ashamed of anything. He has nothing to hide. He he knows that he's completely accepted by his father and mother. And and you say, son, you got to come in here. we got to put some clothes on. And he has no clue because he's free. No guilt, no shame, no embarrassment. That's Adam and Eve before the fall. Life and all its joy and fullness. They don't even know there's any such thing as shame. Shame, what's that? They don't know there's such a thing as guilt. Guilt, what's that? This connection and relationship, this harmony, what's that? They don't know. Because they are free. Free. But then what happens? God gives them the whole world to enjoy, gives them one single command don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What happens? They eat of the tree. They eat of the tree. You know what was lost? Many things were lost. I want to define it this way. They lost freedom. They gave up their freedom and entered jail. Notice the consequences. Verse 7, "...then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked." That represents shame. Because in 2.25, we're told that the man and his wife were both naked and there was no There was no shame. So now they're sewing fig leaves together to cover themselves. Why? Because now, now they feel shame. Well, we can't walk around like this. They feel, they feel shame now. They're not free like the two year old. They're not free like they were a couple minutes ago. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves. Free people don't hide. What do you have to hide from? You're free. Slaves hide. Slaves hide. We got to run. We got to hide. That's what slaves do. Verse 10 And he said, This is the Lord speaking to Adam. Where were you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I, and I was afraid. Afraid? Where, where did that come from? That's what comes with sin. We, we now live in fear. We can't even imagine a life with absolutely no fear whatsoever. We all are afraid of different things because of sin. And then notice the, the broken oneness in the marriage. And again, we, we can't even hardly imagine what Adam and Eve enjoyed in marriage as a husband and wife because we've never experienced it and we've never even seen it. But notice what happens and it's, it's kind of interesting. Verse 8 We read, and they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden. They together, Adam and Eve, because they were together in many ways. And then verse 10, notice, Adam says, I, singular, heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Notice that they were a a they. They were a one. They were they. And now Adam says, I heard you all by myself. I ran, I hid by myself. And we might want to say, and while you were doing all these things, what were you doing with Eve? You know what Adam basically said? He said, oh no, God is coming. We've got to hide. And it's every man for himself. Sorry, Eve. That's what he did. That's what he did. And now there's not true freedom. Now they're slaves and it affects everything. They're slaves. And it's tragic. And one of the strange ironies is that many people and their expression of liberty are actually bringing upon themselves tyranny and bondage to sin. Romans 1 talks about this as well. Just one other passage before we move on. But I want you to see this because again, you will not understand what Jesus is saying unless you understand slavery. Slavery to sin. When Jesus offers freedom, it will not mean anything unless you realize you're a slave and in need of freedom. Romans 1. And again, I want you to see that this is just human nature. When Jesus says everyone who sins is a slave to sin, He's just talking about the human condition. Romans 1, same thing. Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteous men, righteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Talking about the wrath of God. The wrath of God is revealed. Hang on to that. That's what we're going to see. The punishment of God. 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen. They don't glorify him as God. They don't thank him as God. God punishes them. What does he punish them with? Notice this phrase, gave them up. In my translation, it's different. 24, therefore, God gave them up. And you're going to see it again in 26. For this reason, God gave them up. And then in 28, God gave them up. Because of their sin, God gave them up. Here's the question. What did he give them up to? Let me just read one verse. Therefore, God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. 26, God gave them up to dishonorable passage. 28, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. People say, oh, if you sin, God's going to punish you. You know what the punishment of sin is? More sin. More sin. You sin, and God says you want, He gives them over. What does He give them over to? A life of sin. The punishment of sin is more sin. The punishment of sin are heavier cords of sin weighing us down. That's the punishment. We sin. So God says, I'm going to punish you and I'm going to make you a slave to sin. People say, they read through Romans and they say, Oh no, this is America. This is every single man, woman, and child. This is human nature that Paul is talking about here. You know there's a God. You don't turn to that God. He gives you over to bondage. And again, I'm stressing this so we understand what Jesus is talking about. Turning back to John 8.5. Jesus goes on to say in 35... The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. Uh, this is a picture of first century context. and It's a picture of a house, large house. And in this house, you have sons and daughters, and you have servants or you have slaves. And notice that in the same house, some are slaves and some are freemen. Uh, the house represents god's house and we know this because jesus says twice you do not remain in the house forever the son remains forever so he takes this contemporary illustration and he raises it and he helps you see this is god's house a slave does not remain in god's house forever only a son a member of the family stays in god's house forever Only the son enjoys all that the father has. slave has to ask permission. The son gets all the water he wants. (laughs) The son could have more water if he wants. The slave may or may not get water. (laughs) So that's the analogy that Jesus is using. And then notice 36. So, if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. Jesus is upping the ante with this analogy. He's saying, I'm the Son in the Father's house. You're a slave. And the only way you can be set free is if I, the Son, sets you free and allow you to enjoy all the privileges in the Father's house. And if you're free, then you will be free indeed. And they are offended by this. How dare Jesus say that he's the only one who can give them freedom! And they don't even want to admit that they're slaves. And of course, they misunderstand at first and think it's physical slavery. But Jesus says, no, I'm talking about spiritual slavery. The only one who can set you free is the Son. Now, it's interesting because earlier in 31 and 32... He says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Now, how do we harmonize the son setting us free with the truth setting us free? And I think it's very simple. The son sets us free through the truth that's found in his word, which is why we need God's word. I don't think I told the story on a Sunday. If I, if I did, excuse me. Um, but in my last class, uh, Ligon Duncan mentioned that he heard from a missionary and he, he couldn't remember the country they were in. Um, but they were passing out Bibles and the husband came to a store and he had to get something in the store. And standing outside the store, and I don't know if this was the Middle East, but it was one of these dangerous countries where you're not open for free to share the gospel, was, was a man and he's holding some kind of automatic weapon. <laughs> and he walks in the store and he picked up whatever he needed to get. And, you know, can imagine how he was, you know, just kind of walking in, didn't want to be noticed. Walked back out, get in the cart, let's move around, honey. <laughs> well, they're going down the road and the wife says to the man, she says, that that man standing outside the store, did you give him a Bible? And he says, no, I didn't give him a Bible. He was standing outside the store holding a gun. Didn't you see the gun? And she said, well, I I really feel burdened that God wants us to give him a Bible. I think we need to go back and give him a Bible. And he says, you didn't hear me. He he was holding an automatic weapon. It was a big one. It was a scary one. Uh, No, I didn't give him the Bible, honey. Let's just continue on. The wife was really bothered by this. So she starts to pray out loud. Dear Father, may the blood of that man's hand not be on mine on the day of judgment. Because my husband wouldn't go back and give him a Bible. He stops the car. like, wait a second. Wait, wait, wait a second. He had a gun. <laughs> and she says, I know, but I, I'm just, I, I'm so overwhelmed by the idea. I think God really wants us to go back and give him a Bible. I really think this is what God wants us to do. I said, okay, okay. Turn the car around, go back to the store. Fear, trembling, Bible in hand, walks up to the man. He says, really feel like I need to, to give you this. And he hands him the Bible. And, and the man, the Muslim man says, I've been standing outside this door for three days. I had a vision and a dream. And God said, stand outside this door. And someone is going to hand you the book that's going to have in it the words of eternal life. I've been standing here for three days waiting for someone to give me a book. And God can work however He wants. I don't deny how God works. You know that in many Muslim countries, you hear stories again and again of God having visions to people. But here's what's really interesting about this vision. This man has a vision, but God directs him to the Word. If he's to be set free, he has to have the Word. God sends a missionary with the words of eternal life so he can be set free from his sin. Jesus works through His Word. It's the Word of God, the truth of God that sets us free. And when He sets us free, we are free indeed. Now notice what Jesus says. This is so important. He says to the Jews who had believed in Him, if you abide in My Word, you are truly My disciples. What, What does this word abide mean? It means remain. Obey. If you obey My words. And then he says, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And then I picture this blessed spiral taking place. You obey the the Word, you understand it, you're set free, and then you obey more and you understand more and you're set free and just continues on and on. And as we grow as Christians, we should become freer and freer and freer as the years go on. So that we will be like some of the older people in our congregation so that when we're towards the end of our life, we decide I just love Jesus. The only thing that matters in all of life is Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior. I can't wait to see Him because they have been set free again and again and again. And now you look at them and you're like, you're one of the freest persons I've ever met in my life. You don't care about the opinions of man. You don't care about your material possessions. You're even getting to the place you don't care about your health. All you care about is Jesus Christ. You are free indeed. That's what happens. So the issue here is do they really believe? Anybody can say, I believe. Do they really believe? Is there evidence of their belief? And the only thing that's going to set them free is the Word of God and living in obedience to the Word of God. Here's the paradox. When you talk about living, living according to God's word, you know what people in the culture are going to think? They're going to think you're a slave. Isn't it? We look at them, we think you're a slave. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead and spend a week and a half in a Betty Ford Center and talk about how free you are. We look at them, we say, slave. They look at us and they say slave. And sometimes even Christians don't understand the freedom that God has in His Word. Two passages, real real quick, in James. I love this. In James 2.10, he says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails, in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, Do not commit adultery, also said, Do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are going to be judged under the law of liberty. That's the Ten Commandments. The law of liberty. Why does God give us laws? so that we can be free. We think freedom is escape from laws. Not God's laws? God's laws are intentionally designed for our freedom. Exodus 20. Exodus 20. If you remember the passage, this is where God gives his people the 10 commandments and notice how it begins. And God spoke all these words saying, before we get to the Ten Commandments, we have this, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. I'm the Lord your God. I'm the one who set you free. You were slaves back in Egypt. I set you free. I brought you out of that. So now as free men, let me tell you how you enjoy life and all is full. Let me... Show you how you enjoy freedom. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not bow down to any graven images. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Why does God give the Israelites the law, the Ten Commandments, so that they can enjoy the fullness of their new found freedom? They need these laws because they don't know freedom. They were slaves. Some of them were slaves their whole life. Most of them, that's all they knew. God says, I'm going to set you free. But you don't know how to be free men because <laughs> you never experienced. This is how you can be free. Walk according to my law and you will be free. Lord, thank you for your law. We should be kissing God's law. Thank you for your law. I love it. Close with Martin Luther. This is from his treatise on... Christian liberty. Martin Luther said, Let us then consider it certain and conclusively established that the soul can do without all things except the Word of God. And that's and, and that, where that is not. There is no help for the soul in anything else whatever. But if it has the Word, it is rich and lacks nothing since the Word is the Word of life. Of truth, of light, of peace, of righteousness, of salvation, of joy, of liberty, of wisdom, of power, of grace, of glory, and of every blessing beyond our power to estimate. If we have God's Word, we have all that we need for God to work mightily in our lives. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for how Jesus uses it to set us free. Father, help us to live lives of freedom. And Father, help us to see if we're living in bondage, we haven't really believed. Father, may we not be deceived. Father, I think of how gracious You were to me when I was deceived. Father, may we see that Jesus Christ is our only hope of salvation, our only hope of deliverance from bondage to sin, our only hope of enjoying life in all its fullness. And Father, may we continue to turn to Your Word, which brings about all these great blessings. And In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.